to episode 228 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and I'm delighted that David McCloskey, whose debut thriller, Damascus Station, is about to be published. So welcome to the podcast, David. Nancy, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Um, first, we should mention that you know wherever you write. Uh, as a CIA analyst, you worked in, the, in field stations in the Middle East. You are, a third, you are the third former CIA I've interviewed this year, and the second with a debut novel. And it seems that you can take the officer or analyst out of the CIA, but it's a bit harder to take the CIA out of the writer. And so I ask this question of all former intelligence officers and analysts and law enforcement who have gone into writing, is what drew you to writing a novel? Because if gathering intelligence can be frustrating and a lot of hurry up and wait, writing can trump that 10 times over. <laughs> well, that's, um, that is certainly true. I think for me personally, um, it was an experiment with a very different kind of writing than I was accustomed to doing when I worked at the CIA. So, you know, the, the intelligence products that I produced at the agency were analytical, uh, maybe a little bit bland, certainly directed to the point. Um, and, you know, they weren't the fun world and crazy world and is oftentimes frustrating world of trying to write fiction. And I had always enjoyed writing. Um, and I was really interested in thinking about whether I could tell different kinds of stories through a novel about the world that I had worked in and lived in for a long time, but from a very different perspective. Um, you know, I worked on Syria for a long time at the CIA and, and much of Damascus Station is based on that experience, but I was looking at it from the standpoint of politics and policy and, and sometimes the human angle can get lost or sort of trodden uh, underneath the, the demands of writing that kind of product. And so, you know, in this book, I was really interested in looking at people and, and the human experience um, inside the CIA, inside Syria during the war, which was, to your point, oftentimes very frustrating, uh, as I think all fiction writers must, must experience as they you know, write, certainly for your first novel can be like that. Um, but it was also very freeing and gave me a lot of, uh, you know, an ability to write stories that I, I wanted to tell when I was at the CIA, but just wasn't able to. So, I mean, I think I, after having read Damascus Station, I think I can guess some of your influences. Um, there seems to be a strain of Graham Greene in your books mm -hmm. and Jean Le, Le Carre more than sort of Ian Fleming. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> not, that, uh, not to disparage Ian Fleming. No, no, certainly not. Certainly not. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's true. I... I'll say like, like you probably, I love, I mean, I've been reading spy fiction and thrillers since I was little and I love all of it. Um, I really do. And, but I think what I was most interested in just personally in writing was a story that was still fun and moved and, you know, had exciting things happen, um, but was a bit more character driven perhaps than some other thrillers in the genre um, and really invested in making sure that, I don't know, the, the, the emotions and the people felt authentic. I, I was really excited about, about that. 
Um, so I, yeah, I think you're right. It's probably a, a little bit more, um, I, I sort of hesitate to even compare myself to Le Carre, but a little bit more in that vein of a character driven spy novels, you know, than, uh, yeah, you know, and, and Ian Fleming or you know, more of the shoot 'em up kind of action thrillers. There's some of that in Damascus Station, of course, but um, it, it's in doses. It is a war zone after all. Right, exactly. This story revolves around uh, a disintegrating situation in the ancient city of Damascus in Syria, a country that's racked with rebellion and the government's brutal. And I think you mentioned there are 17 intelligence services response. So where in your imagination, because this is fiction, Right. Did Damascus Station come from? You know, what was there? Was there one particular thing that happened when you were stationed in Damascus or, or outside of Damascus or in Cairo or any one of these sort of roiling uh, places? You know, I, I think of the Chinese curse, uh, you know, may you live in interesting times as sort of a CIA thing. You know, may you be stationed in an interesting city. <laughs> yeah, not always a good thing. Sometimes you want to be in a boring city that, you know, is relatively safe and uh, and has nice, nice restaurants. Although certainly Damascus had those. Um, I think so for me, as I started writing, I, I realized that it was important to me to, again, it's fiction, but to communicate something true about Damascus and about the Syrian war. And so I tried as much as I could to make the place feel like it did in the first few years of the uprising. And so the the Damascus and, and the, the, the events in the book that happen um, are, are really almost a mashup of a variety of things that occurred between about 2011 and 2013 in Syria, which is the first, first two years of, of the war. And I, I felt like there was just so much, the whole country, you know, the, the country had been ruled by the same family for 40 years. It was a um, autocracy that, that banked heavily on creating this kind of wall of fear between its security services and the population to keep people in line. And in a very short period of time, that, that crumbled in late 2010 and early 2011. So there was this, this sort of profound societal change happening and, and the beginnings of civil unrest. And there was so much drama. I wanted to bring that to life and felt like, with a few exceptions, I didn't really have to embellish the Syria too much to make it feel dramatic and, you know, um, and, and to, the reality was gonna be as good as anything I could come up with, if not better. And so I really wanted to anchor on, on the real events of those first couple of years. So to me, the plot was thoroughly gripping. <clears throat> but what I was intrigued by was the relationships among and between the characters. So in many ways, the CIA is like any other employer. There are office politics, personal and career agendas, suspicion of coworkers, and general mistrust, which was uh, certainly my case and was vexing when I worked at a newspaper. But it really had, it rarely had deadly potentials. Um, so for all the usual interpersonal workplace conflict, the agency is different. For example, you wrote, F-ups happen to good officers. Deception does not. You can lie to your wife, 
your girlfriend, your kids, but not to the CIA. So that makes it a little different than most workplaces. It does. It's a who doesn't place. lie to their boss? <laughs> it's a unique place. That's for sure. Um, I, I think of the CIA as a very bipolar place. Um, the, the mundane, the office politics, all of that is there. It's also quirkier than your average workplace because it's a large government organization that's very secretive. And so there's very strange, you know, it, it's just kind of a, it can be a very weird place to work in a very mundane kind of way. Like I'll give you an example. Um, so I am, well, during the, uh, I guess it would have been maybe the first couple of years of the Obama administration, there was a sort of broad-based effort for more budget austerity across the government. And the way that trickled down into the agency, among other ways, was um, there was not an automatic business class ticket issued if you were flying overseas. Okay. So you, like a newspaper. Like it is, yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a normal thing, you know, for a large company. Um, there was a a cutoff of thirteen hours. So if the trip was thirteen hours or more, you got it. If not, you did it. Now there was an exception, which was there was a, a waiver you could get, a medical waiver, if you were, and it was called. There was a different name for it, but everyone just called it the leg waiver because what they did was you actually went to the agency doctors. They measured from your hip to your knee, from your knee to your ankle. They took your total height, they put it in a computer program, I don't know, came up with a number. And if you were above that number, you got it. And if you're below, you didn't. And so there's this weird kind of dynamics, bureaucratic dynamics like that. I am, I'm six foot four and I got the waiver, much to my colleagues' consternation. Um, you know, weird, quirky stuff like that. On the other side, the CIA does incredible things. Um, and it's a very, you know, if the quirks are quirkier, the highs are much more exceptional. And the, you know, it's it's a much more this place where you're trying to get people to sell secrets to you and commit treason and the agency's doing all kinds of things. So it's a very interesting place. And one of the strange things about it is, and I think this is exactly what you're hitting on in the line you quoted, is that for a place that's really cloaked in deception, it's all about telling the truth. And it's really true what I said in that line, um, deception is not tolerated, <clears throat> full stop. I think there's, there's a kind of cartoonish picture of CIA officers as professional liars and very deceptive and manipulative. And, you know, <clears throat> it's actually the opposite. They have to be extremely honest. They have to have good judgment and everyone inside the agency has to believe that they're telling the truth. Uh, and, and so, there's a bit of a, uh, you know, interesting dynamic there with the way that the agency is portrayed and really what the mission of place is, which is getting to the truth and telling the president and other policymakers what that is. Or schizophrenic. <laughs> or yes, schizophrenic or bipolar. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's aspects of that for sure. There's duty and then there's the heart. And so your protagonist, Sam Joseph, and I got to tell you, I have a soft spot for people with two first names, falls <laughs> for a source uh, within Assad's palace and something that's expressly 
forbidden by policy. Yeah. But something I think, humans being humans, happens. And of course, it makes for a good story. So you talk a little bit about uh, uh, Sam and Miriam. You know, I found this relationship between case officer and asset to be, or agent, but either, either word works, um, to be a very interesting one that, that felt like there was a lot of depth there. And, you know, I talked with a lot of case officers as I was writing the book just to try to get a sense of, you know, what does it really feel like to have a, a long-term source like this or someone that you're, you know, you, you sort of feel like you've got skin in the game, they've got skin in the game, you know everything about them, oftentimes more about them than their family might know. Um, and so it's an extremely intimate relationship, um, particularly for long-term sources that are highly trusted. And I thought that that was a really fascinating set of emotions and psychology to sort of work through was, well, let's, let's inject some attraction and kind of a romantic angle in there and see how that works for the characters. And honestly, as I was writing them, um, it, it just sort of felt, and this is a bit, maybe sounds a little strange, but you kind of, I kind of felt like the characters started to move in a particular direction and their relationship moved in a particular direction that- Not, not strange was, to me, was I way, to a lot yeah. of writers. Right, it, it's almost like, you know, I, I kind of had a rough outline and who I thought they were. And as I wrote the story, it just, um, their relationship deepened and it became much more, it really became a center, kind of the emotional spine of the book. And I liked, as I wrote it, it I started to realize that that was right because well, there's a lot of plot that's moving this thing forward. Um, you know, it's really the tension and the contradiction and the passion in their relationship, I think that's the centerpiece of the story. And that was that was a lot of fun to work through. And it felt like it came from a natural place inside that case officer and agent relationship where there is so much intimacy built in. Your characters uh, are, especially, you know, your characters understandably on the CIA side, are very three-dimensional. You talk about their quirks and you talk about their nicknames and what people call them behind their back and all this. But one thing I noticed is on the other side in your book, the Syrians are not cardboard stereotypes. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, redeeming qualities are thin on the ground to non-existent with these <laughs> people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but the characters have context. And, you know, much of which is almost wholly consuming paranoia, even at the top. But I appreciated that you, you imbued them with degrees of, of evilness. Yeah, yeah, degrees of evilness. I like that. I, I was not very interested in writing a book or in, well, I'm not even, I wouldn't even say writing about, I wasn't interested in spending a lot of time with characters because it was like, I got to sit there every day and spend time with these characters. So I, I at least want to find them interesting, you know, even if they're doing bad things. I was struck as I wrote that what I became interested in was dealing with some of the tension between kind of a moral clarity on the part of some of the characters and a moral ambiguity or grayness that I think is pretty endemic to the human condition and certainly to war uh, and, and the conflict in Syria, um, by all means. 
And I, I'll, in particular with the Ali Hassan character, I was interested in how he developed into somebody who is sort of deeply ambivalent about the government that he serves. And, and yet he's stuck in a lot of ways. Um, he doesn't have a lot of good options. And, and that to me felt very real uh, with respect to the Syrian experience of a lot of these guys who are in this government, which you know has been appropriately villainized <laughs> for what it's done. A and yet when you zoom in to a person, you know, they're in a particular situation. Um, they have a family, they have a job, uh, they have a, you know, government that they work for. And in a lot of respects, you know, they don't have as much agency as I think we here in the States walk around with, with a lot of freedom to make a bunch of decisions that don't have life or death consequences on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's not the case if you're a, you know, Syrian government official during the war. And that to me was a, a compelling kind of place to start from to give a character depth, right? So to think through all of that and realize though you can be, you know, it's it's kind of part of this ambiguity, moral ambiguity in the war that, you know, he's, Ali Hassan in the book, he's interrogating people in brutal fashion. Um, he's also trying to protect his family. He's got two little boys. Like that's a real thing. You know, you can call a guy like that evil or good or whatnot, but neither of those labels really work. I mean, he's a complicated person. And then on the other side, his brother, much more deranged. <laughs> um, and no ambiguity, know, no ambiguity. Less, with but, but I like your much less um, for sure. But, you know, he was reflective of a lot of the Syrian government officials that I observed um, in my time at the agency, much less. He had, a, you know, he has a lot of moral clarity about his mission. You know, we just think it's despicable in a lot of ways, but he's at least got context and we know where he came from and why he feels that way um, without without sort of drawing some kind of moral equivalence between his actions and the actions of other Syrians in the book. I, I want to be clear that there are good guys and bad guys in here, but, you know, there's enough tension and grayness that I think, you know, makes it feel hopefully a little bit more real to the human experience. Well, I was drawn by the title of your book because the mention of Damascus, you know, strikes a chord for most people in Western civilization. It's mm. been a city since cities were invented, uh, but it hasn't always been in a country called Syria. Uh, you know, the Middle East is tribal and the borders of the divide nations are for the most part lines drawn by European powers over a hundred years ago. And so I'm wondering how this factored into the overall setting of Damascus Station as you sort of laid out the plot, all of these people on the Syrian side that are sort of orbiting these, these security services, the, uh, the family of Assad, uh, Mariam, who is, is uh, a Damascene Christian. It's, it's, it's an interesting uh, mix that I think a lot of people may think they know, but uh, in, in action, it must be really something to see. So Syria, as you mentioned, the lines don't make a whole lot of sense if you look back too far in history, uh, the borders, I mean, and they were drawn by, you know, the French and the British in the aftermath of World War One, And um, you ended up with a country that had a pretty broad ethnic and uh, sectarian, religious sectarian makeup to it. And that is profoundly shaped Syrian society and politics ever since. And so in my book, 
I, I did want to reflect that reality in some way um, because I think in our discussions, in particular in the U.S. about Syria, a lot of that complexity and nuance is just not present. And so through my characters, at least, Ali Hassan and Rustam, his brother, are Alawite. Uh, Miriam is, like you mentioned, Damascene Christian. There is a uh, rebel commander in the group who's a Sunni Arab. And I wanted to at least draw some of that complexity out um, in, in the book so that the readers could have a better understanding of the war in Syria and, and her history um, without it feeling like I was framing a history lesson down their throat, which of course no one wants. But as you sort of live that through the characters, you hopefully get a sense of some of the complexities inherent in Syrian society and, and in the way the war unspooled. Exactly. And, and Assad, uh, like Hassan, is, is, is um, you'll have to pronounce it for me, Alawa? Um, Alawi. Yeah. And, and that's a minority. Yeah. It is a minority Muslim uh, sect. And, it, you know, that's always the, the rule of the minority is always interesting and, and, and seems to engender more paranoia and the Christians who've been there for thousands and thousands of years um, are fortunately for them, for the most part, an afterthought. Right, <laughs> right, no, and, and the, it is so important to understanding the Syrian war, to understand that more minority Alawite mindset which I hopefully I conveyed a bit in, in the book through the Hassan you characters. You did. Um, because it's just profoundly shaped the government's response. You know, this is a group of, of people who it is a, it's an offshoot of Shia Islam. It has not been considered uh, by most sort of Orthodox Sunnis for most of history. It has not been considered to be in any way, uh, you know, part of mainstream Islam up until the, really the, 50s and 60s, most Alawites in Syria lived in the mountainous regions along the coast. They did not live in the cities. They did not interact much with the Sunni population. But the French, who uh, colonized Syria after World War I, um, built a, you know, I think for good colonial purposes, but from a sort of historical standpoint, highly unstable <laughs> uh, political system in which they, you know, sort of used the minority groups in Syria, Christians, Alawis, Druze, to, uh, you know, essentially you have a divide and conquer approach to the to the much, you know, more sort of politically problematic Sunni Arab population, which was about 70% of the Syrian population. And so over time, what ended up happening was these Alawites came uh, essentially down from the mountains. There were land reform too that contributed to that, came down from the mountains into the cities um, into the military and security services, which was a way to advance themselves. By the time of the Syrian civil war, they had been in power through the Assad family um, or you know, had access to power through the Assad family for about 40 years. And while most of them were quite poor, lived in the mountains, uh, many of them were in the security services in the upper echelons of the military and were sort of imbued with this historical sense of uh, if we're not in power or in the mountains, we are going to be killed. 
And it was a, it's a highly dark view of the world. It's perhaps, uh, you know, in the early days of the unrest, perhaps it was not totally true that that would be the case. But through a variety of you know different events that occurred in the first few years of the war, it, they sort of that community found itself bound to the Assad regime and and was its one of its principal fighting sources during the war. So it's a very sort of sad and and very sort of kind of dark view of the world that they that that community has developed over time but um it's very real and so i wanted to communicate that through through those characters and yeah and and there is there is a contrast i think um you mentioned this earlier but there's a contrast to the united states there to me it looked like the syrian security services intelligence services relied on brute strength mm-hmm. and and a lot on muscle and just eliminating problems permanently. The United States, you know, you, you talk about the, the budget constraints and stuff like that. The United States, the CIA has um, these fantastic technological advances. And uh, a good friend of mine, Annie Jacobson, wrote a book about DARPA and, and how mm-hmm. so many of these things were developed. And, and there's plenty of money for, the, for those and not for staplers. But I, I, I loved, I, I really appreciated how you integrated what uh, the agency and what our country, our, the technological prowess that we have. That was, and that must have been, I would think, a little bit of the fun stuff. I don't know if all of those things exist. I do know that some of them do because I talked to Annie and I can only talk to her every now and then because it scares me to talk to her too much. <laughs> No, I um I think without getting too much into the technical detail, I, I tried to make the world of my CIA, whether it was the Cobra communications equipment, uh, the bomb that gets constructed in the in the book. Although I maybe mean, shouldn't have said that. It's, uh, it's well, it's Syria. There's but, yeah, a bomb. That, that's a good that's a good point. You sort of look at the title of the book and you figure there'll probably be a bomb. Um, I tried to make that those aspects as realistic as possible without obviously giving up secrets. The book had to go through the CIA's publication review board after all. So I had to be responsible with what I wrote. Um, or like, I didn't want to create a technical manual for someone obviously to create a car bomb. So I, I was balancing those things, but I did want, I wanted it to feel real and to the extent possible. I really tried to do my research to, to make it real. Well, yeah. And I like, well, I, as I said, I like the contrast between uh, the brute strength of, of the Syrian regime, and, and it's effective. There's no two ways about it. And the more uh, surgical approach that the United States. Yeah. You talked about, you talk about, you know, you had to, you had to send it to the CIA pre-publication people. And I was, uh, you actually addressed one of the more pressing questions I had after reading your book and your acknowledgements. And that's the hot dog machine in the original headquarters building in Langley. I'm amazed if that exists, that they let you put that in because I can't believe it's not classified. It, it probably should be just for the for reputational purposes. So no one thinks that the CIA has actually got a four mil hot dog dispenser, but it's true. We've got one. Um, they're pretty delicious when you're staying late and working on something, you know, go down there and it does look like someone's loading a machine gun with uh, this, you know, coils of hot dogs and plastic wrapper, um, you know, with the condiments nearby. But 
you know, I, I, the first time I saw it, I thought I was hallucinating uh, when I was walking around in the basement, but you know, <laughs> there it was. And another thing you've just mentioned, it's in the basement. Uh... Oh yes. And although I should say, um, people who work in the basement at the CI don't like it when you call it the basement. It is technically the ground floor of Langley. Uh, so on the elevators, it'll say G, but it is always called, especially by the uh, office dwellers above, it is called the basement. See what I mean? Oh, all businesses are the same. That's all, right. You know, I, I, right. Was, I was talking to one of your former co-workers, uh, former CIA, and I, you know, I said there's a lot, um, there are a lot of parallels between um, journalism, being a reporter and, and being yeah. A field agent, you know, you talk about cultivating sources and protecting them and maybe having a crush on them. You're usually, although sometimes you will get hurt, but you usually are not going to be physically uh, damaged That's right. by, by having a by having a journalistic source. Although That's I, did, right. I did have someone try to run me down with a car once. Well, see, they, so you've experienced it then, you know, that's, that's. Yeah, no, well, yeah, someone tried to, someone, I was standing there and someone decided that they would try to run me down the car. Fortunately, they, they were going, I don't think their heart was really in it. Is this, a, got, was this a source? Yeah, it was the source's husband. Source's husband, okay. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I am sure that plenty of CIA case officers have been threatened with attacks by sources, family members who have found out what's going on and uh, want them to stop. So that would be probably right, be right in line with, you know, 50 other CIA case officers who've had a source's husband try to run him over. I bet it's happened. <laughs> well, as I said, I, I don't think his heart was truly in it because he, he was coming. He, right. he was, well, it's not that he missed. He probably would have hit me eventually, but he wasn't going very fast. Okay. <laughs> you could get out of the way. Right, I jumped, and I was younger and a little bit more spry. Like many good spy novels, you end on a note of ambiguity. So I have to ask, is Damascus st Station the first in a series? Are we going to see more of Sam Joseph? Um, I hope so. So I am, I'm working on a second book right now, but it's not Syria-focused, and it's in the same universe, but with uh, very different subject matter. So I'm, I'm right now, I'm two thirds or so the way through a book on, or it's a spy novel uh, focused on the next phase of the US-Russia uh, spy war. And there are a few characters that overlap. I won't say uh, which ones, but I do have uh, a couple other Syria books plotted out that effectively chart the course of the war and uh, you know deal with the same set of characters, at least the ones that survive Damascus Station. So um, hopefully we'll see more. Oh, Russia, the gift that keeps on giving. That's right, that's right. You know, that's, there's a former colleague of mine uh, named Jason Matthews who wrote some wonderful spy thrillers. Red and Sparrow and- Red Sparrow, uh, uh, just great books. And he, uh, he's got a great line that he, used to say he woke up every morning just grateful for Vladimir Putin and all of the content that he would provide. So it's um, there's a lot to work with with our Russian uh, friends. So it's it's been fun to work on that one. 
David, thank you so much for joining us and talking about your debut uh, novel, Damascus Station, which is, is sort of a spy novel for the 21st century and, and also one for all time. It's, it's, a, it's a keeper. Awesome. Well, it was great to be with you, Nancy. I had a lot of fun. Mm -hmm.